Please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before Thee. We come to Thee in the name of Thy Son, who atones for all of our sins, O Lord. Lord, we can only approach Thee through Him. We ask, God, that Thou would continue to give us faith to come to Thy Savior, to come to Thy Son, our Jesus, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, That would lead us and guide us in all of life's trials and temptations and victories, Lord. That we would look to Thee and Thee alone. Lord, we thank Thee for Thy kindness to us. For Thy mercy towards us. We ask, Lord, that we would be edified by the preaching from the catechism tonight, Lord. That would be in accordance with Thy ultimate authority which Thou hast given us, the one thing which gives us life and truth, namely Thy Word and the Holy Scriptures. God, help us to see Jesus more richly. and Let us not come to such a great theme as what Thou hast done for us in Christ, lightly. But may our hearts be edified, Our souls drawn closer to Thee. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. If you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Starting in verse 23. We read these words. Of St. Paul, the Apostle. Possibly some of the most important words in the New Testament and in the Bible. Wherein we see the sum and substance of the gospel laid forth. Starting in verse 23, we'll read through 26. St. Paul writes, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Dear congregation, tonight we come to the beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism's second part. We went through the first part, which was of man's deliverance. Or the second part is of man's deliverance. The first part was of the misery of man, which spanned through Lord's Day 2 all the way to Lord's Day 4. Now we are starting here in Lord's Day 5 of man's deliverance. Keep in mind the structure of the catechism that as some have put it, is guilt, grace, and gratitude. Keeping that in mind helps as we work our way through it, both here publicly and if you ever read it on your own and meditate on it, it helps to keep it in mind that it's structured that way. Part one obviously dealt with the guilt of man, dealt with his sin, 
The state that he had fallen into through Adam and his own sins that he had committed, that we've all committed. And now this second section of man's deliverance, which spans 28 of the Lord's days, it's the largest section in the catechism, and rightfully so. It's the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. The sum and substance of our faith, the sum and substance of the scriptures themselves. As we've talked about multiple times, on every page, the holy prophets of the Old Testament, especially the minor prophets, Jesus is found on every page. And every verse, it all points to him. It all points to what he has done for us. Let's read Lord's Day 5 together. If you don't have it in front of you, I can read it. Lord's Day 5, which is questions 12 through 15. Question 12. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Eternal and and temporal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? Answer. God will have his justice satisfied and therefore we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. Question 13. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? Answer. By no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Question 14. Can there be found anyone, anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? Answer, none. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. Question 15. What sort of a mediator and deliverer then what must we seek for? Answer, for one who is very man and perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. So after having finished that bleak but important and integral part of the catechism, the guilt that man has in in himself from both Adam and actual committed sins, it was bleak, but it is important. After finishing that, part of man's guilt and man's misery, we now come to this great section. Man is altogether lost. He's sinful. He's wicked. He's dead in sins and transgressions. We walked through all that. For three weeks, for three Lord's Days, all the newspaper said, if you will, was lost, lost, lost. Man is a captive to sin. Man is justly held before God for his sin and will be punished in hell. But now, something quite different comes before our eyes in the heading of this next section. Man's deliverance. Delivered? Delivered. Saved. Vindicated. Rescued. Ransomed. How, how can it be? How can it be that man, so wicked, and if you know yourself and you are a Christian... Your sin goes far deeper than you even know. It affects more people than you even know. And it happens more frequently than you even know. That's why the psalmist prays, deliver me even from presumptuous sins, O Lord. Sins that I don't know about. Sins that I have cast up and heaped up all the days of my life that I didn't even realize were there. So this has been 
what has been put forth time and time again, lost, damned, captive to his sin, captive to the judgment of God and the justice of God. Yet here it says, deliverance. We can question it all we want. And rationally, we should once we come to an understanding of our sin. How? If God is just, how can he forgive sinners? How can he forgive the wicked? Yet there it is. In the pages of scripture, the heading of this catechism, the top newspaper headline, delivered, captives set free. I remember when I was a child that for a few weeks, the front page of the morning newspaper had the same story on it over and over. This was right after 9-11. It was right after we invaded Afghanistan. It was right after we sent troops in there to fight Al-Qaeda and to find Osama bin Laden, and that war began. During the conflict, an American journalist was taken hostage by Al-Qaeda, by the terrorists. And that seemed to be, at least where I was living in Chandler, on the front page every day. They were talking about that for weeks, daily. And then one morning, the paper came in, and it said something like, American journalists being held hostage by Al-Qaeda has been freed, delivered, been rescued, been ransomed. It was great news. The man who had been held hostage by his enemies for weeks was now delivered from them and was a free man on his way home to America. Deliverance is truly sweet. However, this parallel doesn't quite work with our situation. For we are not innocent men and women being held hostage by our enemies. We are the enemies, as we have seen. A better parallel would be as if the front page of the newspaper read something like, Deliverance! Osama bin Laden has been delivered from his enmity against America. He's been made a friend, given U.S. citizenship, and given a mansion in Beverly Hills. That's more fitting for our situation. Such a title would more accurately parallel what has taken place for us in Christ. We are not victims. We are perpetrators. We are the enemies. We are not just bad people whom God must punish by some outside law. We are the wicked sinners who are at enmity with God. We are his enemies. We are not innocent hostages being set free from our unjust oppressors in some unjust prison cell, but we are enemies of God being delivered from his own penitentiary that he built for us and then brought in, like the prodigal son, given a ring, given a robe, given a kiss, That's amazing. That's why it deserves 28 Lord's Days. That's why it deserves our constant meditation as Christians. That's why it deserves us seeking after him constantly and living, therefore, thankful to him. We must have gratitude for what has taken place. Before we proceed, I think it's important to note also the stark contrast that exists here in the catechism and the way the questions are formed in the previous section Versus what they are now. I don't know if they intended this. But I certainly found it helpful. In the section on man's guilt. They seem defensive. They seem accusatory towards God. They seem like they're trying to mitigate man's guilt. Remember question 9. It asks doth not God then do injustice to man? We looked at that last week. 
Is this not all God's fault? He was trying to ask. Since God requires of us that which we cannot keep, if we're sinners, it's because we fell into sin, and now he still requires us to fulfill the law, but we can't even keep it? How is that not injustice for him to punish us for that? If all we can do is sin and we are nothing but sin, it is unjust, is it not, for God to hold us accountable to it? However, such objections were dealt with in answers 9 through 10. But now, but now, after the questions 9 through 11 have been answered, after those answers have been put forward and we understand the depths of our sin, all recourses, any, any and all excuses, and any and all defenses have been taken away from man in his sinful state, he can now only speak as he does in question 12, which starts, since then we deserve temporal and eternal punishments. So before it's, doth not God do injustice? Now it's, well, since this is the case, that we deserve temporal and eternal judgments, and continues on. Now, the questioning recognizes the guilt of man. Now the questioner recognizes that he must seek mercy rather than accusation against God. And that's why in question 12, since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there now no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? Question 9 as we saw, acted like the first thief on the cross that we read about at the beginning of service. He was crucified with Jesus, and he said to Jesus, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. As though he had said something like, If you're truly who you say you are, which I don't believe you are, you would fix this situation and you'd save us. This is all your fault. Do you not do injustice to us if you have the ability to deliver us here? But question 12, which is thought to be one of the most important questions in the catechism, acts like the other thief on the cross who said, and I'm changing the pronouns from plural to singular, I suffer condemnation justly, for I receive the due reward for my deeds. Then turned to Jesus, he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. The first thief, being impenitent and adverse towards Jesus, received no response from Jesus. But the second thief, who confessed his sins, placed his faith in Jesus, was told, Verily I say unto thee, said Jesus, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. That's the result of the two types of questioning. The two types of approaches to Christ. One comes blaming him. One comes trying to wiggle out of guilt. And the other one comes to him realizing I'm lost without you. Remember me. Let us notice three points from tonight's Lord's Day questions. Number one, satisfaction for God's justice is required for deliverance. Number two, whom this satisfaction can be obtained by. And number three, this satisfaction is met in Christ alone. First, the satisfaction of God's justice is required if there is to be any deliverance whatsoever for sinners. And as we saw, this is found in question 12. 
does a great job of summing that up. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishments. Is there then no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? And the answer is great. God will have his justice satisfied, and therefore we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. It's the divine dilemma we talked about last Thursday night. By satisfaction, the, conf- or the catechism here means fulfillment. It must be satisfied. It must be quenched. Just like thirst must be quenched, so too God's justice must be quenched. It must be satisfied. It must be fulfilled. God's justice must be enacted upon those who transgress against it. The penalties for the breaches of his law must be completed. His justice is not satisfied, therefore, until sin is punished. God's very character is on the line. God's very character is on the line. This is what people forget when they're doing theology and looking through theology. The character of God has to flow through all of these things. If you have a theological position and it goes against the character of God, it's probably incorrect. In fact, it is incorrect. God's very character is on the line. If he does not punish sinners, then he's no less wicked than the sinners he's saying he's going to punish. Just like the just judge and the evil judge that we've talked about. A just judge will punish the murderer in his courtroom. He's not going to let him go and say, well, I'm a good judge. I'm a loving judge. And then let the murderer go. Everyone would look at the judge and be like, you're not at all just or loving. For you just let the people who killed my family go. His attributes are fractured, if this is the case. His very being crumbles to pieces if he leaves the wicked unpunished. He cannot claim to be holy. He cannot claim to have love or be love or have justice or be just if he lets sinners go free. And we'll expand on that in a few points here. He must have his justice satisfied for, number one, his truth demands it. His truth demands it. He said that he would punish sinners. He expressly declares this in Ezekiel 18.20. The soul which sinneth, it shall die. So God's not going to deny himself. God's not going to speak one way and then do something else. That's not God's character. He's truth. He does not lie. He does not err. He's not a man that he should lie. For he is truth itself. So the fact that he is truth, the fact that what he says is true, demands that he fulfill that which he says he's going to do, which is his justice must be satisfied. Number two, his holiness demands it. For impurity is at at express odds with who God is. If he is pure and he hates that which is impure and is the very antithesis of that very thing, then he must punish that which is unpure. And if he doesn't do that, then he can't claim to be pure or holy. His authority demands it, number three, For if he is the supreme ruler of all creation, and if he governs all things by his most wise and holy law, then he must uphold it. He must uphold it. If God does not execute a penalty upon the wicked and those who break his law that he put forth, then sinners triumph over him in a way. His law means nothing. It's no longer infallible, that's for sure. If a law is given forth and it's just you can break it all the time, it's not an infallible law. If you can break and get away with it. Number four, he must uphold his justice because his care for the well-being of all creatures demands it. What do I mean by that? His care 
for the well-being of all creatures demands that he uphold his law. His laws are given to help guard happiness among humanity. To guard people from the injury that they might inflict one towards another. Again, just like a just judge does here in our court system, he's to uphold the law and protect the righteous and punish the unrighteous. They're, there to, they're set there to punish those who harm one another, steal from one another, injure one another. His law offers divine protection to humanity, one from the other. And if he does not hold men accountable to that law, we can have no assurance that he can even protect us at all. Number five, our own moral instruction at his hand demands that he keep it. Meaning he taught us this law. Any morality that we have or express as mere dim and dark reflections of who he is. And his law has given us the standard. His law has told us how we are to live. How our laws in our countries and in our lands are to be structured. He tells us that. So the fact that he has taught us this means that he must also uphold it. If God doesn't punish the sins of his creatures, then why should we punish the sins of one another against our land, against our property, against ourselves? There would then no longer be a standard of right and wrong. So you see how this all affects the character, the attributes, the essence of who God is. If he doesn't enact his judgment upon sinners, if he doesn't punish that which is wrong, how can he then be what he says he is? How can his word mean anything? How can his promise to protect, his promise to uphold the well-being of his creatures mean anything? Full satisfaction, as the catechism says, of God's justice must therefore be had. It must be had. And according to the catechism, which I think in this place especially is in line with scripture, this can only be met in one of two ways. One of two ways. Either in ourselves because we're the ones that, that did the transgression, we're the one that sinned the sin and broke the law, therefore it either must be upon us, the punishment, the justice being satisfied, or in another. Or in another, it says. Logically, this leads us to ask another question. Which one shall it be? Which one can it be? Can we satisfy this justice, or must another do it for us? That brings us to my second point this evening. Second, by whom this satisfaction must be obtained by. Must be obtained by. We find this summed up in questions 13 and 14. Question 13, can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? Answer, by no means, but on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. And then question 14, can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature, able to satisfy for us? Is there anyone who can satisfy? Can we find someone who can satisfy that justice and that punishment on our behalf? Answer, none. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. Are we able to satisfy this justice? By no means, the instructor says. And scripture teaches us very plainly that we cannot. For by our attempts to keep the law, as we've talked about, especially in Lord's Day 3, our very attempts to keep the law only make our sin published even further. They increase our sin. Our attempts to keep the law. 
By the laws and knowledge of sin, Paul says. Furthermore, our Lord teaches us to pray daily, daily, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I get daily from give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We're ever increasing our debt. Our debts, our sins against God's law, are daily increased, the catechism says. And so does scripture. For even if we could at this moment, this is important, if we could at this moment never sin again, that would be amazing, and we'll have that when we're glorified. If we could at this moment never sin again and only live in perfect conformity to God's law from henceforth, that would not at all satisfy the justice that is deserved against past sins that we've done. They don't just go away. We hold our criminals here in the state to a higher standard. The criminals in our state are held to a higher standard. Some of them can be reformed, if you will, and put back into society, but a man who is a thief and steals, he must repay that, and it's remedial in that sense, but he's still a thief. It doesn't ever go away. And murderers are usually met with the death penalty, or are supposed to be. Our debts, our sins against God, are daily increased. It would not undo or satisfy the justice deserved against our former sins for us to now be really good, even if we could be perfect from henceforth. This is why Paul says in Galatians 2, 16, By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Shall no flesh be justified. Our keeping of the law itself is corrupted and tainted with sin, as we've talked about. Even our good deeds are as filthy rags before Jehovah God. Even our good deeds. The instructor of the catechism here in question 14, then tells us to look away from ourselves. So in question 13, he says, no, you can't do anything to, you can't satisfy on your own because you daily increase your sins. So be counterproductive. You're constantly just snowballing your sins. But now he tells us to look away from ourselves and to look to other people. Is there any person out there? Is there any person in the world? Is there any other person who is a mere creature, it says, who's just like unto us, who is able to satisfy on our behalf. Can there be found one? Either for the whole race or or for myself? Is there anyone out there? What is the answer that the Bible and the Catechism gives us? None. There be none. None. There are no other humans who can satisfy the justice deserved for our own sins. And it says that this is the case for two reasons. Number one, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. That's the first answer. That's the first part of that answer. That's why man cannot do it. One man cannot be a surety for the other one, cannot die for the sins of the other one, pay for the sins of the other one, satisfy the justice deserved against the sins of someone else. And I'll just mention this as a side note. What about Adam? We talked about this in multiple other Lord's Days, how Adam's sin comes to us. Well, we talked about how his seed would have been holy had he remained holy and upright. But because his nature itself was corrupted, he died spiritually. Now the only thing he can produce is dead seed. If his seed remained, his seed would have been holy had he remained holy. So our sin, our original sin, our being born in a state of sin is because bad trees bear bad fruit, good trees bear good fruit. 
He used to be an apple, if you will, and now he's an orange. So he makes more oranges. He was once holy, and his seed would have been holy, but then he became a sinner, and now his seed is sinful. But God will not punish any other creature for the sin which some other person has committed. As we saw earlier, Ezekiel 18.20, The soul which sinneth, it shall die. It shall die for its own sins and not for the sins of someone else. The verse continues and lays out this point. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteous, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. That's what the prophet Ezekiel says, or God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel says in that verse. That is, each man must pay for his own sins. Each person will be judged according to the works he has done in the body, whether good or bad. We're not going to get to have somebody else pay for that. We can't, because man is wicked. And that's the second point, the the second answer he gives as to why none exists that can pay for our sins for us as far as mere humans go. No mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin, the Catechism says, so as to deliver others from it. For the sinner daily heaps up his own debts. He daily heaps them up. We just talked about that. And outside of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, he will forever, even while he's in hell, be making new sins, be committing new sins, be heaping up for himself judgment. He will be sinning afresh and afresh and afresh throughout all eternity. There's never a moment that he'll stop doing that. So therefore, He can't then go and pay for the sins of someone else. He's not able to do so. Third and last point, this satisfaction can be met in Christ alone. In Christ alone. Question 15 lays this out. What sort of mediator and deliverer must we then seek for? If there is no person who can do it, whether ourself or someone else, what kind of mediator or deliverer then exists? God would have remained completely just, holy, loving, and merciful, and forgiving had the answer to this question simply been, there is none. There is no mediator. There is no surety. There is nobody who can deliver you. God would still have been loving and merciful because that is his very nature. But such is not our case. Such is not our case, and bless God for it. Bless God for it. The answer to that is answer for one who is a very man, and perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. And that's who's been given to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God gave a Savior. It was not required to do so. Man could have taken upon himself the punishment due for his sins. Yet, God was merciful. God had a plan to save and to redeem. God had Jesus in mind for us. And that is the good news. That is the reason we even come and talk. We come and preach. We come and hear. We try to live in such a way as to honor this God. For this God did not leave us to ourselves. Though he would have remained loving and just to do so. Rather, he gave us Jesus. And if you would flip back over to Romans 3, if you're still there. If not, turn over there if you would. Romans 3, 23 through 26. We'll just briefly look through it. 
verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All, meaning all, all people, everyone in Adam, everyone who has ever been born, have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the standard that God has. And the verse after this, verse 24, could and should have read, being damned rightly according to his wrath and justice. That's what it could have said. And God would have been holy and righteous in doing so. But instead we have this. Instead we have this. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's good news. That's good news. That's really good news. Because I'm really, really bad. And we're all really, really bad. Even just an Adam. But we have enacted our own sins. We have committed our own sins and we daily do so even as Christians. We daily do so even as Christians. And coming to the word of God every morning, every day, whenever you come to the word of God and you pray over it and you read it and you ask the Holy Spirit to teach you and lead you into all righteousness, you will be made to see your sins more and more. More and more and more. But you must also see Jesus. You must also see Jesus. A true growth, a true sanctification sees the depth of its, sees the depths of its sin more this causes the soul to see the depths of its sin more, but also, hand in hand, causes it to see the sufficiency, the grace, and the love of Jesus Christ more and more. It doesn't just stay at the sin part. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That deliverance is there. The headline now reads, Delivered, wicked enemies of God, made sons and daughters, made kings and priests, all by his grace, all by his redemption. Verse 25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. We've talked about that word. It's a very, very important word, propitiation. It's not simply expiation. Expiation means the washing away, the removal of guilt. Justification means declaring righteous, declaring holy. Propitiation isn't even just redemption. It kind of encapsulates all of those terms into one. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. And it makes me sad sometimes when I see modern Bible translations or just any translations, people taking away this word or saying, oh, we shouldn't have it. We should explain it with three or four words in the translation. No, leave it and let people learn it. Teach people. Look it up. Understand what it means because it is one of the greatest words in all of Scripture. For in it is our justification, our expiation, our redemption. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, thus taking away our sins, removing them from us. And he also justified us, meaning we are justified in him. His his righteousness is given to us, and that's the redemption also. He purchased us in that transaction. We are his, and we are his until we die, and even after. We are always and eternally his now. No one can snatch us from his hand. Nothing can separate us from his love. That's good news. Verse 6, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. We talked about this a little bit last Thursday, I think actually maybe quite a bit, about the divine dilemma. That in Proverbs it says, that he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But then in the New Testament, right here in front of us, God has justified the wicked. 
how'd that work? And that's where that word propitiation comes in. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness, righteousness of God in him. That's how that works. That's how God can remain just and yet justify the sinner because Christ took our place. There's a divine transaction there. There's a divine transaction there in the propitiation. And all that's required of us is faith. All that's required of us is faith. And as Calvinists, we would say that faith is also a gift. It's a gift of God given to us. The whole from start to finish, all of redemption is given to us as a gift and even the faith to believe. But I want to be careful there and put a caveat, and we should. Remember that we still must call people to faith. We must still ourselves then act in faith. It's not fatalism then, and we just, oh, well, we don't have faith. We don't have free will. I mean, in no real sense in our flesh, do we? However, being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we must then believe. We must follow. We must take up our cross daily and follow after Jesus. That's what faith means. That's what free will comes into effect, is that we do follow after him. He's given us the ability to do so. We're not now, well, every sin I do, it's God's fault. He didn't give me the faith. What did the Father and the gospel say? Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. That must be our cry as well. I want to close in this section with a pretty amazing passage out of one of the Puritans, John Flavel. In volume one of his works, he's, the whole thing is on the mediatorial glories of Christ. And that whole volume is just sermons he preached on redemption, how we're saved in Jesus Christ. And this is uh, titled The Father's Bargain, and it's just in a sermon randomly. He, he starts talking about this in the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace. <clears throat> Obviously, this is hyperbole, hypothetical. These are not exactly Jesus' words or the Father's words. But it gives you a picture. Here you may suppose the father to say, when driving his bargain with Christ for you, Father, this is the father speaking, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? What shall be done for these souls? So we see that's all scriptural truth right there. That satisfaction must be made. He comes to the son. Here's the case. Here's what's going on. These sinners, this miserable lot of souls, has utterly undone themselves. They now lie open to my justice. What shall be done for these souls? And thus Christ answers. This is the son speaking. Oh, my father, such is my love too and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all thy debt. Be all their debt. So he says, bring in all thy bills. Ever, all the debt they have accrued. Bring it all in so I may see all of it. So I know exactly what I'm getting into. And so that when I pay for it, I pay for it in full. That there be no after reckonings with them. When we stand before Christ on judgment day. When we stand before the Father on judgment day. 
And we are judged at the judgment seat of Christ. We will have no thing brought against us. Oh, there's this one more. Oops. Didn't pay for that one. He's paid in full. Paid in full. Upon me shall be all their debt. The father answers. But son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. That shows us the amazing love that Christ has for us here. Son, content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, yet I am content to undertake it. Yet I am content to undertake it. That's his love for us. Flavel ends by saying, Blush, you ungrateful believers. Oh, let shame cover your faces. Judge in yourselves now. Has Christ deserved that you should stand with him for trifles? That you should shrink at a few petty difficulties and complain, this is hard and that is harsh? Or if you knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in this, his wonderful condescension for you, you could not do it. Meaning, live gratefully. Guilt, grace, gratitude. We understand now, in light of God's grace towards us in Christ Jesus, that redemption that justification, that propitiation, that by faith in his blood we are brought near to him, brought near to his Father, and reconciled with God, all of life's difficulties become more endurable. That's what Romans 8.18 says. The sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glories that shall be revealed in us. Christ Jesus, our Lord, right? That's, That's how we do it. That's how we work through this. That's how we get through this. And bear with one another's sins. Bear with our own sins and come to the Father with them through Christ. When we see our sins afresh, when we commit our sins afresh, we must come again and again and again, knowing that we will never be cast away, for all of the debt has been paid. All of the debt. And we are fully and only accepted before him now. We may boldly approach the throne of grace. We may boldly approach it. Why? Because of Jesus. That's why we know that our only comfort in life and death is that Jesus Christ has died for us. The Father is now loving towards us. We are accepted with the whole triune God. The Holy Spirit now leads and guides us, protects us. And we have a full, comprehensive redemption in Christ that enables us to live the Christian life, dear believers. That's really good news. And for 28 Lord's Days, they will attempt to unpack this. We're going to hit a snag on the baptism thing, but we'll we'll, we'll fix it. (laughs) So, anyway, praise God and amen that we have this gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee once again for all Thou hast done for us in Christ. We ask, Lord, that Thou would keep us mindful of it. Thou would help us to meditate on the fact that Thou loved us not only corporately, but individually, that thou hast paid for all of my sins and all of the sins of the Christians in this room. Lord, help us to serve thee. In Jesus' name, amen. John Mosby, please come forward to lead us in the doxology.